This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is now Monday, and we're continuing with our advocacy series. Daphna, how's it going? I hope people are enjoying this week because, uh, you know, it was a lot of work, but the, the topics are so important, so relevant, I think, to our practice. So. Yeah, that's no excuse that it was a lot of work for us. It's, uh, <laughs> But I do think, I do think... Uh, I do think we have the opportunity on these episodes to speak to uh, leaders and people mm-hmm. who are really at the pinnacle of this work and, and, and actually address a topic that often doesn't get enough attention. And, and, and like we always say, um, the podcast is allowing us to fix a lot of things that we're struggling with, especially as PS is coming up. I mean, I'm in the middle of this. You, you get the, the schedule and you're like, what, what am I attending? What am I favoring over another? Yeah. And uh and I'm, uh, and so it's it's nice to be able to not have to decide. We can actually address all these topics on the podcast and one after another, and, and we'll, we'll get around to them. So it's it's kind of nice. We don't have to. Uh, yeah. All right. I didn't mean to say anything bad about PAS. I'm taking it back. I'm pedaling it back. It's great. No, it's I don't fun. think that was bad. There are a lot of options, right? Yeah. And you got to figure out what... every conference. <laughs> yeah, you have to figure out what you're going to pick, right? Yeah. The easy ones are when you're speaking. So you're like, oh, clearly. I should be there. Um, yeah. I have to attend that one. But, um, all right, Daphna, who, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Rebecca Rosenquist uh, today? Um, I sure do. Uh, Rebecca Rosenquist is the health policy director at Policy Lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a member of Policy Lab's leadership team. She's responsible for setting and executing the center's policy agenda, aligning policy priorities with research portfolios, and utilizing Policy Lab's research and expertise to address policymakers' needs. Ms. Rosenquist oversees the center's relationship with CHOP's government affairs team to share Policy Lab's work with policymakers at all levels of government. Ms. Rosenquist has a vast experience working in health policy and advocacy, most recently served as the Director of State Engagement for Shatterproof 8. ATLAS, a quality measurement system for addiction treatment programs. Prior to that, she was the Associate Director for Health Policy at the Leonard David Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania. She has also worked in global health policy and advocacy with Action for Global Health and the Tom uh, the Thompson Reuters Foundation, both in London, the United Kingdom. Ms. Rosenquist started her career in state and local politics, working for the Political Action Committee, Emily's List. Uh, and Ms. Rosenquist holds a master's degree in global politics from the London School of Economics and Political Science and graduated magna cum laude from the College Scholars Program at the Cornell University. She lives in Narberth with her husband and two children. Uh, help us uh, welcome Rebecca Rosenquist. Rebecca Rosenquist, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us this morning. 
Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we have our uh, recurrent guest and friend, Dr. Shettle Shaw. How are you, Shettle? Doing well? I'm I'm doing well. Like I said, I'm just excited that I got to see Daphna in person in mm-hmm. Arizona, and I'm looking forward to seeing Ben at the Eastern Society for Pediatric Research meeting in a couple of weeks in Philadelphia, I'm looking home forward. of the CHOP Policy Lab. Well, you know what gets me excited about coming to Philly is a museum called the, ba- the Barnes Foundation, if you guys are not. And it's been like, I've visited Philly many times, and it used to be a small house outside of Philly. It was so hard to get access to, and eventually it moved into this museum, which makes it super convenient to visit. But there's a great do- documentary about how this was not the founder's wishes to transfer the collection mm. into the city. So it's, I think the, the documentary is called The Art of the Steel, and I highly recommend it because it has uh, a density of masterpieces that is probably just as high as the Met in New York and some other countries in Europe. So um, very much looking forward to any visit in Philly just so that I can go visit the barn. So <laughs> Ben always teaches us something new every episode. <laughs> I was going to say, that was a great Philly <laughs> tourism plug. <laughs> and I love the barn. <laughs> and that's a great film as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. highly recommend so, um, Rebecca, we, we, we are very happy to um, have you on. Uh, you, you work uh, in you're the director of the Health uh, Policy Lab. And the, the discussion that we wanted to have was about um, Medicaid coverage in, during pregnancy, after pregnancy. And um, I guess the first thing we wanted to talk about, and Shadow, feel free to chime in, is why, why is this an important topic for us as physicians, neonatologists, and, and people in the healthcare uh, area? Sure. I mean, I think I think there's a number of reasons this is an important topic. I mean, first and foremost is that, you know, we really are having a crisis of maternal and infant health outcomes um, in this country. And in comparison to other wealthy countries, we have the worst outcomes of any other wealthy countries. Um, and then with huge racial disparities in those outcomes, um, and I also know that probably, you know, listeners to this podcast hopefully know and, and recognize that our maternal health outcomes, infant health outcomes are intricately related. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, that that is the moment we're in. I think we've been in that moment for some time, but there's also just thankfully a growing recognition to some extent of that crisis of um, maternal and infant health outcomes. And then I think um, with that and that national conversation becomes the political will to try to do something about that, which is really welcome. And we've seen a lot of energy um, and efforts at the federal level and um, about addressing this issue. Um, And so people are looking for solutions and there is one that's sort of there and it's only one of the solutions. It's a very complicated problem, obviously, to improve maternal and infant health outcomes and, you know, multifaceted, I would say. But, um, you know, one part of that solution is ensuring continuous uh, coverage and continuous health insurance coverage in the uh, prenatal period and in the postpartum period, and also kind of redefining, you know, how long that postpartum period is and and that moment of care that people need in that postpartum period. Um, And so health insurance coverage, and I always say this when we talk about health insurance coverage, and I'm I'm a huge fan, (laughs) I'm a huge fan of, (laughs) I wish we could achieve universal health insurance coverage. And for listeners outside the United States, you know, I know it'll be um, so shocking to people that we still have so many uninsured people in this country, but um, it's only a part of the solution. You know, some people refer to it as kind of the ticket to our system, like you need coverage, um, you know, in order to access the healthcare system in the United States in order to ensure you can afford to do so and access services, but it's only one piece of access. Um, 
but a very important one, I'd say, you know, and so what, you know, to go back to your question, um, Medicaid uh, in this country is a huge payer for, um, you know, actually right now, just say for children, it's uh, insuring, you know, more than half of the children. It pays, it's the single largest payer for pregnancy um, related services. So it actually pays for about four in 10 births in this country. Um, and then actually with huge variations. So that number is even higher in some places. Um, and so it's in thinking about the levers we have available to us to think about improving maternal health outcomes. Obviously, anything that we can do in the Medicaid program, which is so huge and reaches so many people, um, has huge potential for us. So you know, as I said, we have the political will, we have this huge program. And so, you know, with the recognition of all the work we have to do, there's been great movement on thinking of using the Medicaid program, um, expanding the time that uh, people have access to it in the postpartum period and the eligibility levels for that access in the postpartum period um, to have it be part of our solution and trying to improve maternal and infant health outcomes. And, and we'll talk, and we'll talk about many of these, um, of these, um, opportunities that are coming up for for extending extending the, these benefits, but uh, Cheryl, we were talking off air about uh, some of what the neonatologists and the providers uh, can do, and so I was wondering maybe you can you can share what you were telling us a little bit before we started the recording. Sure. So just to build a little bit on on what <clears throat> Rebecca said, I you know she had mentioned that four in ten births are taking place right now in. In Medicaid, and that number is an overall number of births, right? But when you look at the births that we primarily, as neonatologists, concern ourselves with, right, the VLBW births, um, or the births that occur to some degree before 28 to 30 weeks or before gestation, right, we're already 55% of those births mm -hmm. are covered by Medicaid. So, you know, as we were talking about a little earlier, right? Most neonatologists now are are employees, and they work in larger healthcare systems, and that makes them farther uh, and farther or progressively disconnected from all of these social forces that impact the care that we deliver and the care that we provide. Once someone's in the NICU, you know, we yes, there's there are disparities that people are looking at, but we tend to treat everyone as best we can equally. Um, but we don't really are sometimes don't fully appreciate the differences in the forces or just the scope of how changes in Medicaid policy impact the health of mothers and babies and and to some degree the 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 reimbursement or the payment that we that mm -hmm. we collect. Um, I also just want to talk a little bit about because I I think all neonatologists know intrinsically what Rebecca said, which is that you know, we are the worst uh, in the industrialized world when it comes to maternal mortality. Um, but, and I, I think actually most neonatologists, just because of the literature we read are aware of that, but I don't think they understand exactly how bad, bad. things are here relative to other countries. So as Rebecca said, we're, we're last, um, but we are last by a mile. So we are 17 per 100,000. All right. That's the U S maternal mortality rate, 17 in 100,000. All right, that's 700 deaths per year. Okay, the person who's second to last, and and Ben's going to look up when I say this, is France, right? <laughs> and they are only seven per 100,000. Yeah, less so than we half. are behind, yeah. but we are more than double yeah. behind 
if this were a race, the other countries would have complete would have crossed the finish line, showered, had Lapped a snack, yeah. and gone home before we even got there. Um, and Shuttle, if I can just, I mean, I mentioned like, and we all, oh, hopefully, you know, this has been apparent to people too, like the racial disparities in those figures, but just to put a finer point in it, that Black, American Indian, and Alaskan Native women are two or three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And so, you know, to that point of Shuttle's very stark statistic, that's, that's even worse um, for racial minorities yeah, in this country. And somehow we've gotten to a place in American medicine where we just like say like yeah that's a problem but we i guess we're just this is what we're dealing with when there are things we can do about it certainly with our with our voting we can do about it that's a whole separate issue right uh, most physicians still even pediatricians aren't voting um so that's a problem but it's just interesting right we spend like you know, hours a day deciding, do we go up by 10 or 20 per kilo on feeds? Do we extubate today or tomorrow when we know that like, you know, the bulk of infant health is happening outside of the NICU and that healthy moms make healthy babies. And more importantly, we get repeat families in the unit, right? And so actually that window of uh, postpartum health, when we talk about preventing premature birth, like that is a place where we can prevent the next, you know, preterm birth. So it just seems, it seems obvious, like this is a place where we should be spending resources and, and effort. We actually had um, a researcher at Palestine named Emily Gregory did some interesting, had some research come out recently and started talking, you know, we talk about a lot as a postpartum period and the need for access to care in that postpartum period, which it is, and, you know, not just to physical care, but certainly for behavioral health issues that come up in the postpartum period with, you know, um, postpartum depression, but also substance use disorder and the need for care in that period. But also thinking about more, as you said, Daphne, as an interconception care mm-hmm. period and the opportunity then, you know, to prevent and their findings showed specifically around, you know, access to preventive services related to like hypertension, mm-hmm. um, thinking about subsequent pregnancies and how much, you know, improving those outcomes if we properly care. Um, you know, and get help people get access to care in that um, in that period before the next pregnancy. Yeah, Rebecca also mentioned that Medicaid, you know, health insurance is the ticket is the ticket to the system, right? And when we talk about sort of policy levers, right, extending postpartum coverage and and making sure women are insured through all aspects of of pregnancy, right? So interconception care, prenatal care, delivery, and, and postpartum care, um, you know, really is one of the strongest policy levers uh, that we can provide. And, and the reason I say that is that, you know, when we look at just U.S. maternal mortality, right, which is to not to talk about yet any of the other benefits that Rebecca touched on about, mm-hmm. um, you know, smoking cessation, postpartum depression screening, um, cardiovascular risk, uh, risk factor stratification, all of hypertension treatment, all of the other chronic conditions, right? Um, that we uncover during pregnancy and then people lose their care and we just sort of disconnect them from that care. But if we just focus on on life and death, right, four in five of those maternal deaths are considered preventable according mm-hmm. to the CDC. So if they're going to be preventable and we need to prevent them, the only way they can be prevented is if people have a ticket to the system, right? That's the step. That's the the initial step. And I think that's why people are, that's why a lot of states are, are doing this. Uh, that's why states are considering this. And that's why it's such a strong policy lever 
when we talk about the health of mothers and babies. I, I wanted to go back to some of the statistics you mentioned and some of the disparities we brought up in the US specifically. And actually, Chadol, the fact that you mentioned France is, is a great example because I think in France, we do have universal healthcare coverage, but we're still very much struggling with what we call in French as these medical deserts where basically you are living in an area where having access to a clinic or a physician is actually just difficult. Meaning if you were to be close to a physician, you could get access for free, but otherwise the, the, the situation is such that you would have to drive two, three hours to get to the nearest hospital. And a lot of the, of the negative outcomes that we see in France are related to that. Because if you are in Paris, for example, where the density of hospitals and physicians is quite high, then it's not so hard when your blood pressure spikes during the tail end of your pregnancy to actually get checked and so on. But if you are in a rural area, then it becomes much more difficult. And I am wondering if in the US, we are in a position where there are areas that are showing sort of hope from the standpoint of, well, if we have these certain things in place, we see that the outcomes are better. Or is this more of a systemic issue where it's I'm thinking, for example, in a place like New York, where there's there's a there's technically a lot of there's a lot of hospitals and there's a lot of way to to get to care compared to areas that are a bit more uh, like deserted from a medical standpoint. Are we seeing something similar, or is this really a systemic issue that that affects every state equally? I I think there are a couple answers, you know, to that question. I think it's certainly not. And again, I think it is just important to say that health coverage, again, is that first step to a system. But if the system itself is broken, if it doesn't, as you said, you know, you still don't have access to the care that you need, then, you know, you kind of are, are stuck at that first step. And there definitely is, like, just to be clear, there definitely, um, you know, the rural maternal health, there is a rural maternal health crisis in this country that sort of layers onto all these other issues we're talking about because there's the closure of Um, maternity care units in rural areas. So it's certainly worse there. But then I would say, um, you know, and, and maybe issues specific to that rural access question that isn't just obviously about, um, you know, uh, uh, perinatal healthcare, but, um, you know, for all types of healthcare. But, you know, we even, we know even in cities where there's no shortage of, um, you know, a number of providers, there's only, you know, there's limits to the number of providers that accept Medicaid patients, for instance, and there are just other, um, you know, access issues that sort of stand as barriers to people getting the care that they need. So, I mean, I think it's, um, it, it's multi-layered. I mean, just one thing I, that always resonates with me when we talk about um, the maternal health crisis in this country is that it kind of reflects back on us as a society of like a broken system. So you see in this crisis so many systemic problems. You see the problems of racism, you see gender inequities. And so I think it's kind of the amalgamation of all these other um, you know, system failures, and it kind of comes to a head in this, in this issue. And you know, some of those system failures are, are more broadly, you know, to the healthcare system and these, you know, as you said, rural, rural access or or just um, you know, limited access in some parts of the country, even if people have the health coverage that they need. And I think that's so important to discuss because sometimes you could think, well, if we have a prototype that could potentially be exportable to other areas of the country, then maybe that's that's the place to look. But if if there's if that's not the case, then we do need to look at all the different parameters you mentioned. Um, I I, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the postpartum. Um, Medicaid coverage that we've been referring to. And for people who are listening both in the US and outside the US, I think it's important for 
uh, us to understand that, right? And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Medicaid will cover uh, pregnancy-related matters uh, during the course of a pregnancy, and postpartum, this coverage will sort of stop at the 60-day mark, which is kind of funny, right, Daphne? Because we just reviewed uh, hypertension uh, disease in pregnancy, and we just said th- those issues can last for like 12 weeks after delivery, and so uh, it may not even be diagnosed until that time, right? So they're just that's right, and so pregnancy-related. And so pregnancy-related issues may not even, uh, they may not, they may not uh, follow this, this timetable. And so, um, and so, right, there's, there's, there's a, there's, there are changes happening that are looking to extend this, this coverage for pregnant individuals beyond that postpartum 60-day mark to make it a full one-year postpartum. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, there are really exciting changes underway, which I know is why we're here talking about this, but it is exciting time on these issues. I mean, a couple just sort of level setting, we already mentioned like the scale of Medicaid as a program in this country and the amount of, um, you know, births that it, it covers. I think the important thing, other important thing that's, you know, important to understand for the conversation is Medicaid is an income eligibility program, right? So, you know, and those income eligibility levels are different in different states. That's another kind of core thing to understand about the Medicaid program is that one state's Medicaid program is one state's Medicaid program. It looks entirely different than other states um, because states have, um, they, they administer these programs. And so you see a lot of variation between Medicaid programs, which is important for this conversation. I think we'll get to some of what states have been doing. Um, but then on that eligibility, the thing, you know, to your point, Ben, is that um, the eligibility level for pregnancy services in Medicaid and for a pregnant person, um, you basically qualify at a higher level. So you can be earning a bit more money. And during your pregnancy, you then qualify for Medicaid. And then, as you said, the um, as it has been, then then that eligibility level cuts off at 60 days postpartum. So um, what you would see was a lot of people who then earned slightly above what is the sort of regular Medicaid income eligibility level, which is then lower, um, would lose their coverage at that 60 days postpartum. And they'd have in this critical period for all the reasons we have been talking about and will talk about, you know, will will suddenly have a gap in their health insurance coverage. I mean, I I have two children in 60 days postpartum. I could tell you I was not capable of thinking of getting new health insurance. Had I lost it, I was right. not, wasn't capable of much. You know, it's a really difficult time to boot someone off of their health insurance and then not have access to, you know, the services. Gosh, especially that for they need. parents in the NICU, right? I mean, they're just making it really from one day to the next, you know, and to think about having to sit on the phone for days right. potentially. And so then what has happened is, um, a sort of growing recognition that this is, you know, not no, no. good policy, that a lot of people were losing health insurance coverage two months after delivery. And then essentially a lot of people were coming back on to the program. It's just that they lost coverage and it's called, it's called insurance churning. Um, you know, and so that's very expensive. It's not, it's not great policy. So we've had this recognition of, um, the importance of, you know, access to keeping that higher income eligibility. Um, for Medicaid, keeping people on their sort of pregnancy Medicaid through a year postpartum. And so we had um, under the American Rescue Plan in 2021, basically the option was given to states, because again, Medicaid is a state-run program, to say um, in a much simpler way, you know, 
you know, to basically do this in a way that was much more accessible for states to opt in and say like, yes, we want our Medicaid eligibility for pregnancy to extend to 12 months postpartum. And we've seen, you know, a majority of states um, have now taken that up. Um, and that's just been a really exciting policy change across the country. And so just so people understand yeah. the income limits, because, you know, we talk about percent of the federal poverty level and all the time uh, when we talk about income eligibility programs like Medicaid, which is Rebe- what Rebecca was referring to. But we're talking about $43,000 for a family of four. That's about 140% of the federal poverty level. So if you are a family of four and you earn $43,000, you're just above the Medicaid threshold for a lot of states. So you're uninsured unless you buy health insurance, either you get it through your employer or you get it from one of the ACA market, the Affordable Care Act market plan and plans or someplace else. So there's a good chance that you're going to be uninsured because even with the affordability things, the affordability protections that are built in, it just might be simply too expensive. Then you get pregnant and now that income eligibility goes up. So now you're insured. And I'm speaking about this sort of very longitudinally, just because that's kind of, I think, the way neonatologists think in terms of like what was going on during a pregnancy, right? So now suddenly the income eligibility threshold for your state might be 200 or even 300% of the federal poverty level. So now you're Medicaid eligible and you're Medicaid eligible from the time you know that you're pregnant until you deliver, right? And you guys know this, Ben and Daphna and and most of the neonatologists, it's kind of a no-brainer for a lot of mothers who are otherwise young and healthy. Pregnancy is the first time they really get good, solid, not just prenatal care, but good, solid health care in general, right? They get screened for diabetes. They get screened for hyperlipidemia. They get screened for high blood pressure. They get screened for thyroid disease, right? Um, then they deliver, and this is the churn that Rebecca was referring to. Um, and 60 days later, they go back, you know, they're no longer eligible for that elevated income threshold from that covered them during the pregnancy. And, and this is the part that I still have to wrap my help, my, my head around every once in a while, right? We spent all this time, effort, and money to diagnose these problems, these chronic medical conditions. We know that those chronic medical conditions respond to treatment. And then we disconnect them from their ticket to access healthcare two months after they've delivered. And I think that's what Rebecca's alluding to, which is that if you give people the year, you really have the opportunity to one, potentially save some money because you're not spending mm-hmm. the money, disenrolling them, and then re-enrolling them and re-verifying everything. But you also have the opportunity to save money in the long term by providing chronic treatment for these conditions that you uncovered during the pregnancy. And I think that's why states, for the most part, are making this uh, something that they want it to add to their sort of umbrella of coverage. You're saying and I they're, think not it's really it because, they're not us. doing it because it's a nice thing to do. They're doing it because they, they can also save well, money. <laughs> <laughs> right. But at the same yeah. time, it's that's that's the argument. But that's that preventative care, right? But that's the argument that we as neonatologists need to be making, right? Obstetricians and neonatologists are really within the sort of universe of medicine, the most ideal people to speak to policymakers and to legislators about the importance of making sure that this postpartum coverage is there, not just for mothers, but also as we can talk about, right? All the spillover health benefits 
to to the babies, much of which has been elucidated and discovered through research from the policy lab. If I'm sounding a little bit like Rebecca, it's because most of what I did to prepare for this was read all the stuff she wrote. So, <laughs> well, I want to. Um, I mean, I think the other thing it does is align that twelve that twelve month, um, you know, allowing people who've given birth twelve months of continuous coverage um, following that birth. It also aligns their um, Medicaid eligibility and re-enrollment process with that of their infant, and so then you have in that twelve months following birth, you have a, um, you know, a parent infant pair on Medicaid, which we, you know, for those of us, uh, you know, we like to think about things like dyadic care models, intergenerational health services, those things, those they have to be paid for. And you just have a lot more options when you have this parent and child both in the state Medicaid program. There are a lot of really exciting things states are doing to then take up flexibilities of, you know, brief interventions that serve the parents in the pediatric setting, for instance. So it really allows a lot of that opportunity as well by, you know, keeping, keeping that, um, that birthing person on, on Medicaid in that year postpartum. And, and so the, the state plan amendment that we've been referring to, which basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, I am very illiterate when it comes to that, but the, <laughs> federally there's, it creates an opportunity for each state to take this on and say, Hey, we, we would like to extend coverage past 60 days to a year. Uh, will become effective. Yeah. So the federal requirement has always been that states have to cover pregnancy, you know, the pregnant, uh, a pregnant person 60 days postpartum, right. and then it cuts off. And before the American Rescue Plan Act in 2021, states were able to go to the federal government um, and, and try to request an extension of that. It was just a much more complicated process. Right. It was through a Medicaid waiver. These are big, complicated things. And so what the American Rescue Plan Act did was say, well, we're making it much easier for states to take up an option and extend Medicaid to 12 months postpartum um, by something called a Medicaid state plan amendment. And every state has a Medicaid state plan, and it's just a simpler process to amend it, to change it, and basically take up that option. And so we've seen, obviously, you know, we've seen a lot of action and that states were ready to take this up. Um, you know, I it's it's moving quickly, so I don't want to date ourselves in this podcast, but right now about 35 states have either um, taken up that option or are you know in the process of getting their um, amendment approved by the federal government. Um, so it's it's been exciting. And I think another important point was this when this was first initially changed by the federal government, it was um, it basically had a five year sunset, like it was going to end after five years that states had this option. And so we saw some additional exciting, um, you know, moves from Congress on this at the end of last year in the um, omnibus spending package that they basically made this option for states permanent. Um, what we would love to see have seen <laughs> is that they made it mandatory, like this mm -hmm. wasn't a state option, uh, but that, you know, all states were required to take this up. This just became part of the federal guidance for the Medicaid program. That's not what we saw, unfortunately. So, I mean, we do know that the the states that haven't moved on this are um, pre predominantly more conservative. Um, a number of them are states that haven't taken up the um, Medicaid uh, expansion afforded to them under the Affordable Care Act, and so have lower income eligibility for Medicaid overall. Um, so, you know, it, it would be great if this was um, if this was mandatory for states, and we saw it across the country. But at least now, it it has this permanent nature 
rather than, you know, we were, we were worried it was going to disappear after five years as a research center. We were ready to hit the ground running and show how important it was. And now, you know, I'm I'm curious to poll the room about this because I read about this and I was a bit ambivalent because I was thinking, well, on the one hand, if it did have an expiration date, then, then we sort of, we have a deadline and we can, we can channel our efforts. But now that the deadline of fi- basically states, what you were describing was that states had five years to 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 make this change happen. But now without the with extending this permanently, then I'm thinking, well, could people just drag their feet and definitely could they, and then could people lose lose momentum? I'm just curious how you guys feel about is, is this good or bad is with the with the voting cycle, right? So you may get somebody else in office who may be willing to accept the funding. Right. Yeah, I think Ben is may right. Not it's, now, but may may in the future. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Um, so I can speak because I was involved with New York's decision to extend uh, to extend um, postpartum Medicaid coverage, which I actually was surprised we didn't have until the American Rescue Plan um, really made it an option. The deadline certainly creates a sense of urgency to act, which I think is what a lot of the states that were inclined to do this. Um, Inclined in terms of, you know, philosophically inclined to do this, but still had a little hesitancy about the potential price tag. The deadline really lit a fire under them and said, we have to do this now because we might not have another opportunity and we'll figure out the pay fors a little bit later. The other states that weren't so philosophically inclined to act, I think it does give them a little bit of time to to drag their feet. So that that brings up two options, right? One is that it creates an enduring advocacy opportunity for pediatricians, neonatologists, and obstetricians, right? This is the type of thing that they can go to their state houses now every single year until it gets passed. Um, the other thing is that when the American Rescue Plan and then the, the FY23 omnibus plan that, Rebecca's, uh, com- that Rebecca noted um, passed, they didn't just say, you know, you can make it easier through the state plan amendment. They also said, if you're going to do it, the amount of extra money you're going to spend to do it can be split with the federal government based on whatever the matching rate that that state happens to have for their Medicaid program. So in New York, for example, we have a 50-50 match. So every dollar that we put in as a state, the federal government puts in as well. So if it's going to cost you X amount of dollars to increase that postpartum coverage, the state in New York is only spending half that total amount because the federal government is putting in the other half. That was something that was never done before in terms of incentivizing states to do this. Um, when states wanted to do this earlier because they thought it was the right thing to do, they had to fill out their Medicaid waiver to, so, this, so the federal government could say, yeah, this is great, but then they were still bearing the costs of doing that. It wasn't split at this cost share with the federal government. So it's, you know, what I, what I tell people who are sometimes going to their legislators in different states and are kind of preparing for these meetings, you know, what should I say? What should I say? I go, you should hammer home three points, right? It's, we've never had more knowledge about how powerful this is in terms of protecting mothers and babies. And we've never had a time where providing so much coverage to benefit mothers and babies will be this cost effective. So there are lots of states that are watching their bottom lines. There are lots of states that have amendments that mean their state budgets have to be balanced. So if they're going to be spending this money, they have to find cuts or revenue someplace else. 
So, you know, your job isn't to be the accountant for the state, but you you can mention that it's never going to get better than this in terms of the financial environment mm-hmm. to pay for this extra coverage. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive infamil portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. In the states that have um, done the expanded coverage or are doing the expanded coverage, um, and I'm sure this is happening, but uh, data on outcomes uh, changing, is that available? Something that we can take with us when we go to speak about um, the benefits? Yeah, I mean, I can speak from the perspective. So I sit in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has also taken up um, you know, has also submitted a state plan amendment and has taken up the Medicaid uh, postpartum extension, which we're thrilled about. And, you know, that's you know, really a credit to, to state leadership on this issue. Um, and there's a lot of discussion with, with state policymakers about how to look at the impact of this, how to ensure, you know, that we're, um, we're, we're evaluating it. I think that it does, the pressure is a little bit off on, after this five this five-year window sunset that we've spoken about disappeared because it really felt like, and, and researchers know it takes a while to get data. It takes a while to do the research. So suddenly five years was not very long to be able to, at the end of it, really wanted to be able to defend this policy and show its important impact. Um, but I think there are a lot of, a lot of, I know, I mean, I can only speak to what's happening in Pennsylvania, that there's a, there are a lot of discussions between the state government and the research community about um, you know, how, how to do exactly what you're saying, Daphne, to really ins- look at the impact. There's a lot of also really great national work happening that will look across states. And I'm sure compare the states that do take up this extension versus those that don't. Unfortunately, state um, Medicaid data is um, sometimes very hard to access, uh, very delayed to get access to and, you know, varies a lot by state. So it's very different than working with like Medicare data, which serves the elderly population for those less familiar. Um, and, you know, that that's a big national data set and state Medicaid data is by its nature, um, you know, very messy and very variable. And so I'm hoping that we get some great, and again, great researchers in this space nationally who are looking to compare across states and see what we can make of the impact. I mean, these things take a while to show as well. Um, as we all know, I mean, I think, um, and things have been complicated in this extension of it coming out during, um, you know, the COVID-19 public health emergency. Um, and so, you know, thinking of, um, you know, how we evaluate what the baseline of this looks like sort of with when this policy started, I think will be complicated questions to answer. And I think it will take some time to really show this impact. And I hope we give it it's time, um, you know, give it, it's time to really show what it can do for maternal and infant health outcomes, but that will take some time to evaluate. Yep. That said though, there are some, you know, there are, as Rebecca alluded to, there are some states that decided to do this on their own, even before the American rescue plan made this, you know, provided the first time limited window to do that. And we know, do know that at least from states that have studied the data themselves in, once they made this option available, that health outcomes have gotten better for a lot of the things that neonatologists, pediatricians, and obstetricians um, you know, care about. So there was a, a, a study that looked at Medicaid data files from 2006 to 2017 that saw that providing this postpartum extension of coverage reduced maternal mortality 
by seven per 100,000. So, I mean, obviously there are variations and we talked about the, the racial and ethnic variations, but if we're just looking at, we're walking into this with the 17 per 100,000 rate, we still would be last, but we'd only be three per 100,000 behind France at that point. Um, when you look at outcomes for things like postpartum depression, right? If you look at how many mothers get treatment for postpartum depression, right? It's about 50% of uninsured women will get at least some healthcare encounter. That doesn't really have to be, um, doesn't have to be uh, mental health services, but it could be even primary care services where the focus of the visit was mental health. That number jumps up to two thirds when they were insured by Medicaid. Now it should be 100% and there are other issues to talk about related to access and mental health providers taking Medicaid, but that's certainly a, a benefit compared to what the baseline rate is if they were uninsured, right? Um, and they had their coverage terminated or their insurance coverage lost after, the, after that two-month period, which is the way it is in a, in a lot of states. And then there's also some data to say that if you smoke and you wind up having an extended period of postpartum coverage, about 10% of those women report receiving more cessation services, um, you know, help with quitting smoking. Which is great for the moms, but as you you know, as we all know, right? You know, when we talk about the benefit to babies, whether those are otherwise full-term healthy babies, um, but especially the premature babies, right? Um, you know, there's obviously the risk to the mother in pregnancies of preterm birth, low birth weight, small for gestational age, but the baby themselves, right? RSV, ear infections, multiple other worse health outcomes that are associated with growing up and developing in a household where someone smokes. So while we always are going to need more data because these are states that by definition are different, right? Because they automatically decided to do this. Um, what we do know is been positive. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important for people to walk away from this podcast hearing because there are some times where we think things are good ideas and we don't necessarily feel like we have strong data, but we have strong data from states that have done this you know, as early as the early 2000s or mid 2000s, um, and those outcomes have been beneficial to both mother and baby. Yeah, and, and to, yeah, and to Shuttle's point, I mean, we know that continuous, like continuous enrollment, as it's called, or continuous coverage, is so hugely important. And there's a whole body of literature around that and how gaps in coverage, which this, you know, this policy change should get at, are detrimental to access to healthcare services, access to preventive services. In particular, so I mean, I, I, mean, I know we all. I think you know, as we've talked about several times, like we have these awful maternal mortality statistics, and hopefully, this is um, you know a, a step in in that uh, you know in addressing that crisis. But even more broadly, as Shadow was talking about, I think this broader you know broader issues of maternal morbidity and other issues that come up in that postpartum period. And I'm I'm you know positive we'll be seeing some really good. Um, you know, looks at the impact related to everything, you know, about access to behavioral health services, including substance use disorder treatment in that postpartum period, which, you know, is a major driver to actually, you know, postpartum deaths um, is the is uh, overdoses in that period. So I think it's just really exciting from all these different, um, you know, care utilization and what that might mean for, for outcomes that we'll be able to see. Yeah, I think as a neonatologist, I think that's plenty of data, right? I, I mean, when we, when we all are, our, our parents in the NICU are at greater risk of 
all of those things, right, than the general population of postpartum people. And um, when we talk about long-term outcomes for our neonates, right, that we just are pouring resources into during the NICU admission, um, when we know that parental mental health impacts their long-term neurodevelopmental outcome more than way a lot of the things we do in the NICU. Um, it seems, you know, like you're right that we're perfectly poised to to be ones to advocate for for the need in our states. So where where do people go to find out the status of their state and who do they need to talk to about it? Um for folks who want to know where their state is at, the Kaiser Family Foundation runs a tracker and you can just Google it for Kaiser Family Foundation postpartum Medicaid. And it does a great job of, you know, it's, it's up to date. We'll tell you exactly where your state is on having taken up um, either a state plan amendment option or pursuing this through other means and whether that's been approved. So definitely, um, definitely look there. Um, and, you know, our, our, is our, local or state AAP chapter the right way to do that? Are our AAP section on neonatal perinatal medicine uh, uh, divisions, are are we doing that anything as a group? So maybe somebody who is feeling like, yeah, I want to help, but I, I want to go with a, a buddy to do this. Sure. There are a lot of people who want to help, but just don't know how, right? Right. Um, and I think the way to, to do that is to go to your state AAP chapter. Um and then ask them what they're doing on this issue, because there are a lot of things in different states that kids need. And sometimes postpartum Medicaid coverage for mothers isn't necessarily number one on that list. Not that it's something they don't care about. It's just their limited resources and there's potentially lower hanging fruit. And there's a lot of things that need to be done for children. So I would start there. And if it's not on their radar, try and get it on their radar. Um, and the other thing that we found really successful, at least here in New York, in terms of putting a coalition together, is the, you know, our ACOG colleagues are all over this, as you might, <laughs> as you might imagine. And many, many ACOG chapters already, whether they come from their National American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or or their resources that they themselves have created, have a lot of state-specific resources. And I have yet as a neonatologist, well, that's not true. There have been times, but most of the time when I walk in as a neonatologist and I want to talk about a maternal health related outcome, and I also can lend the voice of the baby, most ACOG people will welcome you with open arms. And if it's not, you know, priority A number one on your state AAP's advocacy agenda, that's okay. Um, But it might be the time for you to consider working with ACOG and saying, you know what, I understand that we've got other things going on, but this is the A number one priority for me as an advocate. And I'm going to potentially work with ACOG closely on, on this issue. And I'll obviously let you guys, you know, let the AAP chapter know what, what can be done. Um, because the ACOG people, like I said, are, are, I don't want to say they're ahead of us, but they've just, they've been paying attention to this issue for, you know, decades. So they have a bit of a head start. There has been a really exciting coalition around this issue in Pennsylvania. And so again, I'm just speaking from that perspective, but I think it's probably true in other states as well. And it's been a really great opportunity, I think, to talk about, you know, we've been working closely with 
we're obviously part of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We're pediatric focused. We're thinking about that in that dyadic, that sort of intergenerational health piece and the how, you know, mother's health is baby's health. Um, but, you know, it's been a great opportunity to work with the maternal uh, maternal health advocates and, and lots of advocates in this space and, and continuing to bring that pediatric piece forward. And I think it's been really welcome. Um, you know, I think as Shettle said, ACOG and other, um, you know, folks who've been thinking more about this as a maternal health issue have kind of been banging a drum for years. And then with the growing opportunities here, I think it's just a great opportunity for, for coalitions that um, bring in lots of different perspectives, including the important benefit of a policy change like this for um, infants and children and for, you know, thinking of family, sort of family-centered care and the importance of keeping the whole family um, on, on continue, you know, and continuously on health insurance coverage. And if we wanted to speak to our legislators directly, um, any tips about doing that? Um, we have, we have worked with legislators on this issue. I want to go, but we had a discussion briefly earlier about the cost of this. That was a big, you know, that's always a big part of the conversation on any, um, state policy change. Shuttle mentioned, and it's, I just always think that I'm a policy person, so I'm wonky to say that states have to balance their budgets. And it's a little bit different for folks who maybe hear about, you know, our federal budget and our debt ceiling and all this. States have to balance their budget. So, you know, a lot of the question here was, you know, how much this would cost um, if there have been these federal incentives, as Shadow mentioned. So there's this matching with the federal government. So um, you know, generally coverage expansions when they come down from the federal government like that are a good deal for state governments because they are sort of otherwise leaving money on the table if they don't take it up. But, you know, legislators have been interested in the cost. Um, we actually did a cost estimator tool um, as at Policy Lab, um, which I think, you know, especially a specific moment in this conversation a while ago was very helpful. And it helped us think about, you know, where where this policy change offered savings. I'll just caution it. It certainly does offer savings, certainly um, things like um, the, the insurance churning that we talked about is administratively expensive for state Medicaid agencies. So there's a savings there of not having that churn and just keeping people on, keeping people on the program rather than having them come on and off. Some of the other savings that we know are there, and I think we can talk through and, you know, um, conceptually, we, we know there are long-term savings. They're a little bit harder to estimate. So I just, you know, want, want to make that point because I just want people to be aware of that. We, we, we know they're there, but they're also pretty long-term. That's not how state um, budget cycles work. And so it's hard to really make the case that they will sort of accrue in the budget window at which they have to kind of do their estimate and show that they can balance their books. So that, that, that's a hard piece of this conversation um, that, you know, that there are certainly are some savings and generally it's a very good financially, very good deal for states and not that expensive for a lot of gain. But some of those real um, savings can be hard to, um, to pinpoint. Um, but definitely to your point, I think in speaking to legislators, um, you know, I think Shadow mentioned some of this, that this is really a good deal for the states, you know, really, I think making that case that not only is it the right thing to do. Uh, you know, in most, even at the state level, states are becoming much more aware of their very, you know, their state-specific maternal mortality statistics. So there are a growing number of what's called maternal mortality review committees. Pennsylvania has one. And so, you know, those those data are stark and they have, you know, made ways in states. So I think there will be an awareness there of the scale of the issue. And I think certainly speaking to legislators, you're going to want to put it in to um, the context of those, those statistics in your own state. Um, 
But I think also that, um, again, not only is the right thing to do, we know it's going to have positive outcomes, but also it's a good deal financially for states with this um, recent um, federal flexibilities that have been put in place. That's convenient. The one one thing I would say, Daphne and Ben, and and we've talked a little bit about this in, in other episodes, and you know, Rebecca is obviously a policy person. Neonatologists tend to be more interested in in data and in outcomes because that's who we are. And not only that, not only is that who we are, but it's also how we were raised, right? When you go through fellowship and you go through um, residency and, and your career. But we also need to deprogram ourselves a little. And I actually find this the hardest part of doing any sort of advocacy work personally is marrying the data with stories. Because when you meet with a legislator, the data will be on that one page leave behind summary sheet that you give them. And yes, you want to talk about it, but you really want to remind them who you are and where you come from. And every neonatologist, I mean, you guys know this, right? If if we're if we're in a national meeting, every neonatologist knows what it's like when the baby survives and the mother does not. Every neonatologist knows that for the rest of the time that baby's in the unit, he's the kid whose mother passed away. Mm-hmm. We've yeah. all had to go into rooms and tell families with the obstetrician that the baby is stable, but the mother has passed away. And we've all seen grandmothers cry because they suddenly have lost their daughters. And we've seen husbands cry because they're simultaneously overjoyed that they have a new son or daughter, but are incredibly fearful about the fact that they're now going to be raising that child alone. Mm -hmm. No one else bears witness to that type of tragedy more than obstetricians and neonatologists. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that people understand what that situation is like and make the policymakers realize that this is what we're experiencing. We want you to experience it for a little while and we want you to be able to prevent it. And your vote or your support for this type of proposal is what can move us into a better place when it comes to the issues of maternal deaths. Um, And you could also obviously talk about the postpartum depression and the smoking cessation and and increased access to contraception services and better interconceptional birth spacing and all of the other downstream effects, right? But one of the things that when I was talking to legislators about is I want them to feel what it's like when we go into that room, because we all, we, you know, we, 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 meaning the neonatologists are, are not happy, but you know, like our baby's stable. So we're like in a better place than usually the, the drama that precedes all of this. But then we have to be there when the obstetrician tells them that the mother has passed away and they do not have that experience. And all of us have at one point in our careers. It's interesting we're talking about this and and getting close to the end of the of the show. I, I mean, I always enjoy um, having on the podcast physicians, but also people who are not providers. And I, I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, what um, was the driving force leading leading you into this work on advocacy policy? Um, because it feels like a very frustrating endeavor. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, but I'm just curious as to as to uh, how, how you got into this space and and what motivates you every day to to uh, take on the the challenge. 
Yeah, it can be really hard work and it's slow work. You know, I think right now what's so exciting in this moment and what we're here talking about is we've had, this is kind of a breakthrough. You know, it's not new that people are talking about all the benefits of this policy that we're talking about today. People have been talking about it for years and you get these moments and we call them policy windows and and that is you sort of break through and all the forces come together of the political will and um, you know, people, the people hearing the data points and people getting the right stories out there to, to everything we're talking about, if people really understand, you know, why we need to make important policy changes, but it's, it can be slow. And, you know, I think there, um, uh, you have to sort of, generally, it's more about incremental wins. And I mean, and even this is an incremental win as, as, as huge and groundbreaking as it is, is it's not going to solve our maternal mortality or morbidity crisis. It's one piece of the puzzle. And I hope we continue to like push on other levers. And I know, you know, us and other folks in this space will continue to talk about all the other things we need to do to support um, birthing people and their children. But, you know, I'm in this work. Um, I find, I, I mean, I do, I find it hugely important. I'm driven by that. Um, I find it, um, I'm yeah, policy wonks. I think we work in a certain way. We like the strategy of it. We, um, uh, you know, there's the sort of politics and policy and where they meet up. And that's when you usually get changed. So my background um, is I have worked sort of directly in in politics and more directly in state politics. Um, I've also worked in advocacy um, and policy for a number of years on sort of a specific background in sexual and reproductive health. I've also worked on substance use disorder, thought about healthcare financing and these kind of questions we're talking about today a lot and related even in a, I worked globally sort of in global health issues related to universal health coverage and, and healthcare financing. Um, so I think it, um, it, it's, it's exciting work, but especially when you get, you know, sort of these, these wins and then we can look to see like now, now what do we do now? How do we make sure that the implementation of this policy change is successful? How do we make sure it's evaluated and we're really looking at its impact. I mean, cause that's what's important. That's what's important here. And that's what will make this, you know, a moment that people look back on when we talk about, you know, groundbreaking policy changes and the way we kind of now look back at the Affordable Care Act and see everything that it changed in this country. Right. I wanted to, if I can go back please, for a please. moment to say, um, just say, I think, I think neonatologists have a, hu a hugely important role in bringing forward their stories. Um, and we were talking earlier about talking to policymakers. So definitely with policymakers, whether it's legislators or other types of policymakers, you know, I think you uh, neonatologists spend so much more time with families than a lot of other, um, you know, providers. And so I think that's incredibly important for that sort of really being able to bring forward the stories of a family's experience and, um, you know, not just kind of in their darkest moments, um, potentially, and then, you know, the hard news that you all have to break, but in that period where families are in the NICU for a long time after delivery, and I'm sure you see the parents that are there and kind of not taking care of themselves at all, because they're so focused on being in the NICU and being with that infant that needs them. And I think that's what we're talking about here today is how to think about in serving the caregiver, how we serve the whole family. So I think they're more broadly, you know, broader than the specific policy change we've been talking about today, there is kind of this, and it's something we think about at Policy Lab and are kind of growing our work around of thinking about like a caregiver agenda. It's actually something the Biden administration has talked about a lot. And so thinking about, you know, this healthcare coverage for the caregiver is certainly one piece of it, but also all the other ways like paid leave policy, um, you know, supportive childcare, all those ways that we think about 
how we support caregivers and both these, you know, parents and informal caregivers and also sort of, you know, the paid care workforce. And in that way, you know, look to then improve, um, you know, infant and child outcomes. Because I think we've said a couple of times, there's all the incredible clinical work you all do in the NICU, but that can only take you so far if we're not thinking more broadly about the health of the family and how the how the parents or caregivers are in good health to, you know, to then engage with their fam with their infants and, and other children for their sort of um, optimal uh, development through that really, those really important interactions. And so I think that's kind of how I think about all this. And I think neonatologists, um, you know, just have such an important role with the access they have to families, the, you know, uh, what they see in families and that extended time that some of them are in the NICU. Yeah. I mean, this is funny, funny you I, mentioned I, that because I, I was scouring your Twitter profile and 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 the recent things you posted i think there was one quote that really resonated with me and what you just said that family uh, caregivers are the backbone of our society but have long been neglected in terms of supportive public policy and i think i i think for me as a neonatologist and i think all of us here could not agree with that statement more uh, sorry daphna you were you were going to say something no i i mean i was going to say basically the the same thing and you know we um there's something else that develops over a NICU admission and that's really trust right our families trust that we are setting them up as well as we can and i mean this is one way we can do that um and it's another way where we can advocate for these parents to go get checked out go do the follow up appointments you know because we know that their health the the health of the infant is, is relies on the health of the parents. So. It's awesome. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's Shuttle, part of a broader. You, yep. Oh, I was just gonna say it's part I of knew, a broader. I knew you were going to have some concluding thoughts. So that's why I concluding to thoughts. The floor All right, to- there you go. No, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's just part of a larger conversation of, of us as a subspecialty realizing that the care, the difference between the care we really want to give, which is to make the baby as healthy as possible for the rest of their lives, all right, um, the care that we actually provide, which is often within the four walls of, of our NICUs, right, that the only way we're going to get from the four walls of the NICU to the optimal care we want to provide really requires paying attention to a lot of things that occur outside the four walls of the NICU. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to start paying a lot of attention to social determinants of health, to policies that influence social determinants of health, and take a more active role in shaping those policies if we want our kids to do as well as we want them to do. Um, you know, we always say, you know, the um, you know, the goal of neonatology, right, is protect the brain, right? Preserve the brain. Um and it makes no sense for us to do everything we can to do to to save that brain, only to release them into a world where policies are going to conspire to not let that child achieve their full potential. So that's great. And I think that's why we're all in this, right? I mean, that's why Ben decided to, you know, to go into neonatal fellowship. That's why Daphne, that's why every neonatologist, you know, I read hundreds of, of application essays, right? And none of them are like, I want to, I want to go into neonatology so I can spend more time on the electronic medical record. Right. They all say they want to do everything that they can to help babies. Right. Mm -hmm. So. And it's a logical it's a logical progression of 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 helping one family at a time to saying, how can I compound this effect to potentially have a broader impact on a larger uh, segment of the population? So, um, yeah. 
I could not agree with you more. Well, you all, I mean, you all do amazing work and there's amazing work that happens in the NICU, but I, I completely agree with Shettle's point that, you know, there's so much that affects a family's health, as we all know, that happens outside, um, outside of the walls of a hospital that happens in their home or, um, you know, even just meeting their most basic needs. I imagine uh -huh. there are NICU families that, you know, don't have enough to eat and, you know, they have other children at home and all those things. And so, um, yeah, again, I mean, anything, again, what we're talking about today, I think is a piece of this puzzle for sure to ensure that that person who has just given birth, you know, that they're getting their own care um, and getting what they need to, to hopefully have better, improved health to serve both themselves and their current children and, and any future pregnancies that they would have. Shadow, Rebecca, thank you so very much for making the time this morning to talk to us. Um, it's been really a, a, a great discussion and very enlightening. Um, we are going to put your information on the episode page for anybody who needs to, who would like to reach out to you guys and, and ask questions or maybe even potentially uh, collaborate. Uh, thank you very much. Daphna, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast or through our website, at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.